Thanks so much. It's wonderful to see all of you gathered here. We're nearly 200. This is doing extremely well. Uh, and it's wonderful to have you here to listen to this you know, talk on the man of the trees, Richard St. Barb Baker, a pioneer environmentalist uh, and his vision of the future. And we couldn't have better people to introduce him this evening because we have two speakers. First, we have Hugh Locke, who is president and co-founder of the Smallholder Farmers Alliance, a nonprofit working with small-scale family farmers to help feed and reforest a renewed Haiti. Earlier in his career, Hugh was director of the Office of Public Information at the Baha'i International Community in New York. While still a student, he was mentored by Richard St. Barb Baker, who lived from 1889 to 1982, so you know, not quite 100 years old. Hugh subsequently established the Baker Archives at the University of Saskatchewan and continues to serve as St. Barb's literary trustee. So who could have more access to what we know about Richard than, than the person who actually created and, and, and helps to run his archives? And our second speaker, Paul Hanley, has published five books and 1,600 articles on the environment, sustainable development, agriculture, other topics. So if you want things on agriculture, you can get the spirit of agriculture. If you're interested in what's going to happen in the future, 11 is the, the book that can tell you more about the future. And of course, he wrote this biography of Bridget St. Barb Baker, Man of the Trees, the first global conservationist. So we have between the archivist and, and, the, and the biographer, who could be better to tell us this evening together about this wonderful man? And Hugh and Paul will share stories from the life of this extraordinary pioneer of the environmentalist movement. 100 years ago, Richard St. Barb Baker foresaw and warned the world about the emerging environmental crisis and offered solutions that are only now being appreciated and applied. Baker's work as a forester and conservationist paralleled his activities as an early member of the Baha'i faith, a faith that provided inspiration for his ceaseless efforts to conserve and restore the world's forest. Those efforts went on for decades and decades and decades. So we're really fortunate to be able to plunge ourselves into the life of St. Barb Baker from the people who know knows best about him. And then afterwards, there'll be an opportunity for questions and discussions. So I'll now pass over to Hugh and Paul to take it on from here. Thank you. Uh, hello, everyone. This is Paul coming to you from the island of Molokai, where I recently moved here from Saskatchewan, where I've lived my entire life. And uh, one thing that means is about 100 degrees Fahrenheit different temperature than I would have been experiencing if I was at back in Saskatchewan right now. And I'll just, uh, I think I'll start out and I'll show, uh, we're going to show a slideshow, give you some sense of the life of this really remarkable human being, Richard St. Barb Baker. And uh, I'll, I'll be sharing that. I first met, uh, I had the opportunity of meeting St. Barb as, as his friends called him back in 1976 when I was 24 and he was 87 years old. And I was part of a, an environmental group called the Earth Care Group, which met at the University of Regina in Saskatchewan. And uh, one day we got a call from the president of the university and there was this man, he called him Sir Richard St. Barb Baker. And he wasn't sure if he was a sir, a knight or a saint or what he was, but he had come and he had offered to give a seminar at the University of Regina. 
Nobody seemed to know who he was, except he was some important person. And uh, most of us had never heard of him, but we set up a seminar. And in comes this elderly man uh, with a staff, an African staff. And he walks in and kind of takes over the room with his incredible stories, a real raconteur, and telling us about his travels throughout the world. And then lecturing us on something called spiral shelter belts. And nobody knew what spiral shelter belts were, and I still don't think I understand it. Uh, but uh, it was very exciting. And then we were invited to a fireside that night. And we went to a fireside in the home of some friends. And uh, I'd never been to quite a, I, I was a very new member of the Baha'i faith. Uh, I'd never been to a fireside quite like that because the, uh, the place was filled to the rafters with people. People like the Minister of the Environment were there. And it was this fantastic evening of, of incredible stories from St. Barb Baker about his life. So I kind of caught the St. Barb Baker bug and I've always been interested with him. I had a chance to meet him a few times, definitely not as many times as Hugh. Uh, but I actually met Hugh Locke that night at that fireside. and. Uh, heard about his plans to move to England to help St. Barb Baker in, in the last years of his life. So I'm just gonna share a screen now, unless you, do you wanna say a few things before I start the slides or? Well, just to reiterate that um, Paul and I met St. Barb at the same time. I had no idea who he was. <laughs> I had even less background than Paul in terms of, of um, understanding his role, but I was, um, very inspired by what he said. And the following year, I was um, going to school in England. And I arranged to meet St. Barb when he was uh, passing through England. And I had some spare time. So I started, I volunteered to travel with him um, during that summer. Um, and realized that, you know, he had this amazing life experience, this amazing message to share with people, but he needed a little support. So I made a very, I don't know how I had the chutzpah to <laughs> make this suggestion, but I said to him, you know, I think you should let me help to manage the remaining years of your life. And he said, good idea. And so I set out to help him reach a new young um, audience with his message. And I also suggested that he should pull together all of the materials, um, his books and papers that were scattered in people's garages and, and attics across England. And so over the course of five years, St. Barb would come and stay with me for part of each year in London. And then I, um, raise the money for his world tours because he'd run out of money. First year I was with him, he sold off the last of the family silver. And so, <laughs> but it was really important to him to keep going with that message. And so when he passed, I had by then with his guidance collected all of his uh, things. And so established the archival collection at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon in the middle of Canada because that's where St. Barb graduated from in 1910. He was in the first graduating class, but that's a story that Paul will touch base with. So over to you, Paul. Okay. Uh, 
It's wonderful, man of the trees. <clears throat> so I wanted to, to start out our discussion with talking about how an early Baha'i efforts, uh, made these efforts to engage in public discourse and social action, which is a really remarkable thing that, that he was able to achieve over many decades. So here's the man in the Redwood Forests, born in 1889. And uh, he's been called the world's greatest conservationist by one of the world's greatest conservationists, Stuart Udall, who was uh, Secretary of the Interior in the US under President Kennedy. So he did have this recognition during his life and the World Wildlife Fund in 1969, when it, when it formed and created its first uh, its member of honor list. He was the first person that was selected for it. So why was he so well uh, uh, admired as a conservationist? I think it was because he was a visionary. And so many of the things that we have, uh, we're focused on today, like rainforest conservation, sustainable development, the importance of smallholder farmers, the mass migrations of people, the importance of grassroots development, reclaiming the deserts, biodiversity, indigenous culture and rights, agroforestry, agroecology, all of these things were things that St. Barb Baker was promoting a hundred years ago. So he was way ahead of his time. And I think often uh, people really didn't understand his vision and how important his vision was, but it's now being appreciated today. So a little bit about his roots. Uh, he was born in England. Uh, this is a picture of his parents who were a very uh, spiritual people, very involved in Church of England and in kind of a revival movement in the Church of England. And this is a picture of young Richard. You can see him in his, uh, his hat there and the, kind of looking like he's gonna take on the world, which he did. So, uh, I think there's, I talk about maybe four kind of spiritual foundations for him. And the first one is this Christian millennialism that his parents were in. His father was a nurseryman. That's how he made his living. And that's where uh, Richard learned about tree culture. But he was also a, a lay preacher. He built a chapel in his yard and entertained all kinds of people, uh, encouraging them to become uh, strong Christians. But he was also very open to other faiths and he would often have uh, Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and so on come to his chapel and visit the family. So there was kind of a universalism in his thinking as well. And all of this, of course, rubbed off on Richard, who's sitting, uh, standing there beside his little sister. Then he had this incredible uh, experience as a, a young child when he was five years old. He got lost in the forest around his home. And he was wandering in the forest, couldn't find his way back. But for some reason, he didn't become scared. Instead, he had actually a mystical experience of uh, a kind of emerging with the trees in the forest and, and really went into an ecstatic state. And he said this was kind of a foundation of his whole, for his whole life, this young experience as a young child. And... Uh, this is, I think, maybe a sort of second spiritual foundation was this, this deep uh, and, and intimate connection with the natural world uh, at a sort of spiritual level. And he found his way out of the forest and made it back home without too much trouble. 
uh, as a young man uh, at 20, he decided to go west, go west young man. And for some reason came to Saskatchewan and homesteaded at a place called Beaver Creek, which is just outside Saskatoon. He had a little farm there and also became one of the first hundred students at the new University of Saskatchewan, where he studied, he was studying divinity and was working towards becoming a, a, a minister and did do a lot of work uh, as a Christian uh, lay minister traveling around by horseback to the different parishes in the countryside and, and helping with services there. He never, he wasn't really that good of a farmer, I don't think, because he couldn't stand the idea of plowing up the little trees and bushes and so on. And so he never did, as they say, prove his homestead. And, uh, but he did uh, focus a lot more on his studies. And one of the things that he did was to, um, become acquainted with the indigenous people that lived in his area. He lived quite close to a, a reservation called a Moose Woods Reservation, which is now called White Cap Dakota First Nation. And he met this man, Charlie Eagle. And Charlie Eagle is standing at the front of this car in this uh, picture I found at the library archives in Saskatoon. And I love this picture. And behind him is uh, a man on horseback. And I kind of because uh, St. Bar Baker was a very, very uh, skilled horseman and did a lot of work with horses in this area and was trading horses back and forth with the First Nations people there. And I imagine that being him, but I don't think it is, uh, but it could have been. And he became very close to Charlie Eagle and his friends on this uh, First Nation and learned a lot about their, their culture, their, their worldview, their spirituality. And I think this is, in a sense, one of his, his second foundations in, in uh, spirituality, or his, his third foundation in spirituality, was his connection with Indigenous people. So they had this uh, very deep worldview that connects people closely with nature. This is a, a, a rain dance lodge with the sacred tree in the center. And so he was exposed to many of these ideas and stories and was very deeply impressed by them. Uh, to earn money, he became a lumberjack uh, to work his way through school. He went up uh, into northern Saskatchewan, where at the time uh, at Big River, Saskatchewan was the largest sawmill in the British Empire. And while he was there, he learned about the really uh, poor farming or forestry practices and the amount of waste that occurred. and was really horrified by how the forests were being treated and exploited. And he decided to uh, leave Saskatoon and become a forester. So he went back to England and joined the Cambridge Forestry School. You can see him sitting on the bottom row, second from the left. And uh, he got his education as a forester. Before he went to, he joined the colonial service and went to uh, initially to Kenya and then Nigeria and was in Africa throughout the 1920s. And uh, of course, very much exposed to the, the thinking of the people living there. And uh, I think sorting through in a sense, what the colonial experience was like and uh, really realizing it's, it's many uh, shortcomings and going through some really profound changes in his point of view about uh, what that experience was about. 
But while he was there in the northern parts of both Kenya and Nigeria, he started to, I guess, witness what we're witnessing through much, uh, much of the world today in terms of the devastation of the environment and forests. And he could see this early de desertification taking place in the Sahel region and how this was causing uh, profound damage, not only to the environment, to, but to communities of people living there. And he started to see, for example, the first big waves of environmental refugees, and we're seeing so much more of that today. But he was seeing that in the early 1920s and trying to warn people about this problem of uh, not looking after the land, not looking after the forests, and how this was leading to this uh, spreading of the deserts. So he wondered, okay, as a conservator of forests, uh, how he could assist people in restoring and maintaining the forests. And he went to the elders of the Kukuyu tribe that he was mainly working with. And he said, we have to also plant trees as well as cut them down. And they said, planting trees is God's business. And he said, well, I think we need to help God out. And, and they said, well, everything we do here is through a dance. We dance when we plant, we dance when we harvest. So he got the idea of maybe we could start a dance of the trees. So in 1922, this is the first uh, actual picture of the first dance of the trees that he sponsored. He gave prizes uh, to people who were the best dancers and made each one of them vow to plant, I think it was 10 trees a year and really kind of build up this consciousness of the need to protect the environment and the forest. And this was also the start of this organization that he called the Men of the Trees. He became, as I said, very interested in indigenous beliefs. And he says he was the first white man who was initiated into the Kiyama, the secret society of Kukuyu elders. And there they are giving him the staff of, of membership in, in the, uh, the Kukuyu elders society. And so from them, he learned many things about uh, the spirituality, the, the culture of those people. And the Prince of Wales, who was quite a fan of St. Bar Baker, uh, talked about, you know, this uh, uh, St. Bar Baker's prescience, his deep spiritual conviction about the unity of life and how he had really connected with Indigenous people and saw the connections between their worldview and the new sciences that were emerging of ecology and civil culture. So St. Barb had started uh, with Chief Josiah and John Joe in Kenya, the first group of men of the trees. But then on his trips back to Britain, uh, he'd have a break. He started uh, branches of the men of the trees in Britain and also later in Palestine. And I think it, this may have been the first international environmental non-governmental organization uh, which actually spread throughout the world. And here he is speaking to a group of people in Britain about tree planting. Now we go to his uh, fourth spiritual foundation where he encountered the Baha'i faith. And this is a poster from uh, the British Empire exhibition held in 1924. And part of that, they had a parliament of the living religions of the empire. And uh, he gave a talk about uh, the Kenyan religions 
And after his talk, a woman named Claudia Skipworth Coles came up to him and said to him, you are Baha'i. And he said, what is Baha'i? And she said, you love the other person's religion as much as your own. And so he said, yes, well, I guess I am. And she gave him some books and so on and became a kind of a mentor uh, for him in the Baha'i faith. He took a stack of books and read them on his way back to when he went back to Africa and became very much connected with the Baha'i faith. And it really made a, a lot of sense, his connection with the Baha'i faith, I think because the Baha'i faith is so rich in imagery around trees. And uh, it, it was a kind of a, a really good way for him to connect to the faith through that imagery. Now, in, uh, in Africa, he got into a lot of trouble with the colonial service. I mentioned he was starting to uh, be disillusioned with uh, the British Empire and its mission in Africa. And uh, he was anti-racist. One of the things that he did, uh, which endeared him to the local people, was uh, a British officer was attacking an African worker and St. Barbaker jumped in the way and took the blow uh, from his riding crop, uh, the officer's riding crop, and it broke his collarbone. And when he did that, the uh, African workers were very impressed that he would do that. And uh, however, it, that was one of the things that got uh, St. Barb blacklisted by the colonial service. So by the end of uh, the twenties, he was out of Africa and, but he was invited by the governor of Palestine to come there and try and do something about tree planting in that country. And uh, so St. Barb Baker went to Palestine and he started talking to people about their, their culture there and learned about the, uh, there used to be a festival of trees that was part of the ancient culture. And he thought, now how can I get people involved in uh, tree planting? Perhaps we can use that approach. But there was a big uh, problem, which was all the different religious groups hated each other. So St. Bark Baker was a bit of a trickster and he decided to invite all of the religious leaders to come together, but none of them would ever be willing to meet each other. So what he did was he hired a hall and in this hall, there were multiple alcoves that were curtained. So he invited each of the, the leaders of the, the Christians, the Druze, the, the Jews and the Muslims. And uh, he would brought them in at all at different times, slightly staggered. They'd arrive and he put them in a curtain alcove. And then when the time for the meeting came, he pulled all the curtains back and they were all sitting in the same room and were quite flabbergasted to be found there. But he was so persuasive in his, his talk about trees and how they had to save Palestine that, that they accepted to become the founders of the men of the trees of Palestine. And it was interesting, I, I saw this statistic that Israel is one of the two countries uh, in the world with more trees at the end of than the beginning of the 20th century. So there were some success in that work. Uh, while he was in Palestine, uh, the first thing he did was to go visit uh, Shoghi Effendi, the guardian of the Baha'i faith. And the guardian lived in Haifa in northern, uh, what is now northern Israel in Palestine at the time. And he was head of the Baha'i faith. 
And uh, St. Barb Baker wanted to meet him. This is 1929. And uh, when he, he arrived by car to visit Shoghi Effendi and Shoghi Effendi came out of the house and to greet him, embraced him and handed him uh, an envelope which had a life membership of the Men of the Trees. And Shoghi Effendi became the first life member of this organization and uh, gave him guidance. And also throughout uh, the rest of Shoghi Effendi's life, he, he passed in 1957, always uh, supported St. Barb Baker's work. Now, St. Barb Baker in England became part of the Baha'i community. Here he is at the English Baha'i Summer School, 1937. Uh, perhaps you, you recognize, you, those of you who are interested in Baha'i history, perhaps recognize some of these these people. And here's another image uh, with uh, Dr. Balusi and, and uh, George Townsend, I believe, and St. Barb Baker sitting on the ground on the right in the corner. So he'd be involved in, in Baha'i activities, but he also used this idea of summer schools, which were a part of the Baha'i uh, approach uh, for Baha'i learning and started summer schools for the men of the trees, his organization, which was growing. In 1938, here's the, the first, uh, or the summer school of the men of the trees in 1938. And you can see there's interesting group of people St. Barb sitting in the second row in the middle in black tie and uh, women, woman right behind him in a fur stole. And uh, so there was a lot of uh, reaching out to the aristoc aristocracy and getting them involved in tree planting and planting their estates and so on was part of, of the work that he did in Britain. But I mentioned this is perhaps the first international ENGO and uh, it eventually had 5,000 members in 108 countries. And uh, today it's changed its name. The Men of the Trees perhaps isn't the best way, uh, best title. And now it's the International Tree Foundation still working today. And uh, again, St. Barb Baker spent uh, time working for both forestry, conservation and tree planting and the Baha'i faith uh, combined. And he made this comment, uh, or it was comment was made about him that uh, his efforts to support the Baha'i movement and conservation when he worked together, they were both uh, strengthened. One of the things he did once when he was in, uh, he was in Sweden, and uh, Martha Root, who Baha'is will know as one of the, the prominent uh, figures teaching the faith around the world, uh, she was in uh, Sweden to meet the King of Sweden and tell him about the Baha'i faith, but she grew very, very ill. But she heard St. Barb Baker was in Sweden and she, she contacted him and asked him to meet the King on her behalf. So he was able to do that, met, met the King, give him uh, greetings from Shoghi Effendi and a copy of some Baha'i literature, but then was also able to use the occasion to talk to him about the importance of forestry and tree planting. Then basically from 1929 to 1982, the year that he passed, he traveled the world on this worldwide campaign to conserve and replant forests and to uh, replant the deserts. And he, he actually made thousands of talks and broadcasts 
And many of them had an important ripple effect that uh, brought many people into the fold, both of, of uh, forestry and conservation, but also into the Baha'i faith. And one of the people he contacted was the president of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And uh, he was instrumental in supporting the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was a huge uh, tree planting army in the United States that Roosevelt developed to help uh, overcome the unemployment during the, the uh, depression era. And I don't know if you can read the writing, but this uh, President Roosevelt signed this picture to my friend Richard St. Barr Baker from his fellow man of the trees. So uh, he was involved in many efforts, this in many efforts to save the redwood forest. He wrote a book called The Redwoods, one of the 30 books that he wrote. And uh, yes, very involved wherever he went in the world in conservation efforts. And he became uh, quite a popular speaker and uh, a interview subject. Lowell Thomas, who was probably the most famous broadcaster of the time, was the first person to call him the man of the trees. And he also called him the Lawrence of Africa. Uh, Lowell Thomas uh, had popularized this figure, the Lawrence of Arabia. So, and also interestingly, he was very involved in the vegetarian movement, was a lifelong vegetarian. And uh, here he is in India at the World Vegetarian Congress. So I'm gonna switch now to, uh, over to Hugh. I want to go back, can you hear me? Yes. yes. I wanted to go back to this slide that um, you saw previously of the first dance of the trees in 1922 uh, for two reasons. One, um, I don't know if, if St. Barb ever, um, if you ever heard of this, Paul, but St. Barb told me that there was a representative of the Italian embassy who approached him around this time because they had heard about the dance of the trees and he was given an invitation to go to Italy to advise Mussolini on how to um, engage the locals in Africa. He wisely declined the invitation, mm -hmm. but <laughs> it's an early example of um, somebody recognizing the potential influence that, uh, that he had through these insights of being able to work with indigenous peoples. The other reason I mentioned this is that I, I wanted to touch on four activities, initiatives that St. Barb initiated, which have had a very long ripple effect. And he was so far in advance of his time in crafting ways in which to engage people around issues of tree planting and conservation. And as Paul mentioned, it was always very much infused by his spiritual perspective of the lens of the Baha'i faith, which takes a particular view of the oneness of humanity as a central organizing principle. So that this is the first of the, the four initiatives that St. Barb started that I wanted to just mention, because these, while they are Kukuyu tribal people, they are also smallholder farmers. And now, 
I happened to work with smallholder farmers in Haiti, inspired by St. Barb, and engaging them in tree planting and improving agriculture. But this notion of reaching out to smallholders as a kind of global constituency is something that St. Barb was among the first in the world to do. And right now, there are still 500,000 smallholder farms around the world. That's farms that are under two hectares or less than five acres. And the people who live and work on those farms add up to um, one third of the entire human family. And so the idea of being able to engage that constituency is something that St. Barb started and which is still being pursued to this day. The second thing I wanted to mention is the New Earth Charter that St. Barb conceived of in 1949. And it was one of the first times that something was put into a specific format to be able to say, um, here is how we should be treating the earth. And the contemporary um, spirit um, of this, it can be found in things like the Paris Climate Agreement and other kinds of international um, agreements around the environment. But St. Barb was one of the first to have put that into practice. Another groundbreaking activity was this idea of the World Forestry Charter Gathering. Um, St. Barb realized that all of these diplomats were stationed in um, London. And so he brought them together and said, I'd like each of you to prepare a report on the state of forestry in your um, countries. And so it represents one of the first international meetings that tried to get an overview of the Earth's you know, overall ecosystem. And the Baha'i community um, has twice reconstituted these gatherings, once in 1987 and the second time in 1990, to be able to try and um, capture the spirit of that. But when you think of the precedent that it established, um, you only have to look to the 1972 UN Stockholm Conference, which represented the founding of the UN Environment Program. And then the fourth initiative, which is one of St. Barb's greatest um, contributions, was the Sahara Expedition in 1952. He wanted to draw attention to the fact that the Sahara Desert, which he was claiming was largely man-made, uh, which has subsequently been uh, verified scientifically, but at the time people were um, very doubtful about this claim. So he felt that the first thing to do was to mount an expedition, an uh, environmental expedition to go and look at the um, environment of the Sahara and try and get a, um, a sense of what had happened and what could be done. And he was very much um, um, aware of the power of media. So the day before he was going to leave on this expedition um, overland from England, driving across and going down to um, Africa for the expedition, he invited people to bring peach stones <laughs> to Trafalgar Square. 
And the idea was that the people's contribution of these peach stones would then be taken as a physical link between the people of England and restoration um, initiatives in, um, in the Sahara. So he set out on this expedition with this um, somewhat dilapidated second hand, was called a Humvee at the time, um, and made a 25,000 mile expedition with a small group of, of people. And coming out of that, he had this idea of drawing people together for a collective intervention to begin to reclaim the Sahara Desert. And he thought of this in, in terms of, you know, a worldwide uh, collaborative effort. And the important thing about this particular map is showing that, that the, uh, the scale of the Sahara Desert, which he used the map of, of um, Australia overlaid on the African map. But in terms of getting a sense of this, um, the Sahara Desert is approximately a third of the entire continent of Africa. And it's the size of the United States, the continental United States, plus Alaska and Hawaii, just to get you know, a sense of the proportion of it. And one of the things that he was able to discover in the course of this expedition was coming across evidence of former um, ecological um, conditions represented in this particular instance by a fossilized tree. Now, subsequently, um, satellite imagery has shown that in fact, the entire region of the Sahara was crisscrossed with um, rivers. And so it's now widely accepted that, that all or much of the Sahara was in fact man-made because of over farming by the um, Egyptians at various points and, and other uh, factors. And so St. Barb came up with an idea, which was to get the peoples of the world to come together to plant a massive shelter belt from one side of Africa to the other to stop the southern spread of the Sahara Desert. He put this forward in a series of books. He lobbied widely for it. Um, and then the, the expedition itself was done in 1952, but um, he went again in 1964, traveled the whole circumference of the, uh, the edges of the uh, Sahara to try and get the countries to agree without success. But what's interesting is that this idea that began with the expedition in 1952 is now one of the largest environmental restoration projects in the world. And so the countries of the, um, that St. Barbara originally envisioned have come together in a collaboration that's um, overseen by the United Nations, but it's a very um, widely engaged group of, of governments, NGOs, businesses, etc., that are in fact creating um, this great green wall that St. Barb foresaw. And he's been acknowledged at least by some um, people and notably an article in the Sunday Times a couple of years ago that acknowledged him as having um, had the original idea of creating this uh, great green wall. So as Paul mentioned earlier, there was always this balancing between um, trees, environment, and, and the Baha'i faith. So while he was still in Africa for that original um, Sahara expedition, the guardian of the Baha'i faith asked him if he would go to Kampala in Uganda. And this was for the first international teaching conference that the Baha'is had held. 
And the Guardian, um, then the administrative head of the Baha'i Faith Worldwide, asked St. Barb specifically to um, ensure the participation of um, the local African Baha'is. And so he ferried them back and forth each day, took care of them, and, and made sure that they um, were fully participating in this particular uh, conference at a time when there was a lot of racial tensions in Uganda. So now I just wanted to touch on a couple of situations where the people who were very much inspired by St. Barb in one way or another. So this is the picture from 1977 with Wangari Matai. And then over to the left is uh, Josiah and Jonjo with whom St. Barb co-founded the Men of the Trees back in 1922. And um, Wangari at the time was under a lot of pressure. She had um, herself instigated um, an interest in tree planting and environment. And St. Barb recognized who she was and what she was doing. But she was also under um, suspicion by the government and not receiving a lot of support. And so he went out of his way to um, help her with a tree planting ceremony where he and, and the chief could give their endorsement to her work. And she remained very grateful to him for that over the course of her lifetime. And in fact, it was through St. Barb that I went, met Wangari and she became a very close friend until her passing. And uh, she was one of the people I consulted when I began working in, in Haiti, but that was because of St. Barb's um, original role. And then her daughter, Wangera, um, wrote a, um, uh, an appreciation of uh, Paul's biography of St. Barb, which I thought was really lovely. Other people who were inspired by St. Barb include people like Tony Renato, who has had an extraordinary impact in uh, reforestation um, another one is Scott Poynton, who heard a, a recording of St. Barb on a radio and was inspired to become um, a forester and conservationist. And he now heads an organization called the Forest Trust, with, which works with um, companies and industries all over the world to help them to um, track and reduce their use of raw materials, including trees. But he's become a, a hugely important um, person in that particular category. And then people like Vance Martin, who went on to become the chair of the uh, Wild Foundation and various other international efforts around wildlife conservation. And that's a quote that he uh, put uh, forward for um, Paul's book. St. Barb was also really concerned about the role of youth. Um, and he went out of his way to meet young people whenever he could. Um, he helped um, support the founding of a group called the Children of the Green Earth, which was initiated by a guy named Michael Soule. He um, went on a trek on horseback um, across New Zealand to uh, speak to school children about trees. Um, literally made the entire tour on, on horseback. And then um, when he was 91, he was in China, again, went out of his way to meet with uh, kids uh, to promote the idea of tree planting. Then there's a more recent example of somebody who was very much aware of St. Barb um, as an example, this young Felix um, Finkbeiner. I'm probably not pronouncing his name correctly, but he's the young man who um, has had such an impact in terms of starting um, a massive tree planting operation. 
people like Jane Goodall um, recognizes St. Barb as one of the most important 20th century conservationists and identifies him as a hero. Or to go back to Prince Charles, talking about him as a giant of the global conservation movement. Um, and it's, I think one of the things we want to look at is next year being the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Men of the Trees and what can we do to reinvigorate um, an awareness of St. Barb's role and that particular balance between the spiritual perspective and conservation. And this is the a photograph of St. Barb, his very last tree planting event on the grounds of the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. He died a few days later. Um, that's Paul with lots of hair um, over on the left. Um, and the particular reference here to this uh, quote from Abdul Baha is the idea of the importance of being a source of social good, which uh, St. Barb certainly um, represented over the course of a lifetime. So we'll just end with this quote, the um, Lord of all mankind, and actually I can't read the top part because my screen's got a little blip there, but sorry about that to be a garden of Eden, an earthly paradise, if, as it must, it findeth the way to harmony and peace, to love and mutual trust, it will become a true abode of bliss, a place of manifold blessings and unending delights. Therein shall be revealed the excellence of humankind. Therein shall the rays of the sun of truth shine forth on every hand. Now I'm just gonna play a very short video clip and I hope that it, it um, doesn't uh, break up, but here we go. People sometimes ask me, if you had to start your life all over again, what would you do? I think the answer is the same, exactly the same. I would start as a child in my father's nurseries, helping him to raise tens of thousands of forest trees. And today, there's even a greater need in the world. It's a question of planting trees for survival. And so with that, I conclude and um, urge you, if you haven't purchased a copy of The Man of the Trees, it is an extraordinarily good overview of St. Barb's life written by Paul Hanley. Thank you very much, both. Hugh and Paul for sharing these beautiful glimpses of this. It's very difficult to convince a you know, more than 90 year life of, into a short presentation. You've done a wonderful job of catching many of the highlights of St. Barb's career. And I think that's certainly a we hope that will sort of launch us an interesting discussion this evening. So I hope you're all now preparing your questions. This was fantastic. Thank you, Paul, and thank you, Hugh. Obviously, as a trustee of the International Tree Foundation, I would be failing my duty if I didn't say to everybody here, please have a look at our website. But it has to be remembered that what is the remnant of the men of the trees is, is very small compared to everything that St. Barbaker achieved. What I would like to ask you about is that um, he and the University of Saskatchewan and St. Barb Baker agreed that his archive would be there. It is there. It's well organized. Can you tell us something about that, Hugh? 
Well, the, uh, the archival collection of St. Barb rests at the University of Saskatchewan. And it is one of their largest archival collections. It is also um, one of the 10 top most requested um, collections by scholars. Mm. To go onto the University of Saskatchewan website to find the, the collection. And even though I know it's there, I mean, it's, you really have to be dedicated to find it and then access it. So uh, what we've proposed to the university is that we should be allowed to help fund and, and Stephen's made a commitment and I'm raising some. And we're going to have a public facing um, website so that people can access the collection. Given that it's already one of their most requested, you can imagine then if we make this um, available to the public, because we want people to be able to do original research into exactly who St. Barb was and what he represented and the kinds of ideas he had that are still resonating today. And next year, um, 2022, the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Men of the Trees. Remember that picture of all the uh, Kukuyu tribes people in the first dance of the trees? Um, that's a great opportunity to be able to engage people. So. I just wanted to mention that in Green Glory of the World was published in 1948. He actually has a chapter on South America. And the main concern was when modern uh, forestry methods come here, there's going to be a huge impact. So there was already a concern since 1948. Mm -hmm. uh, just wanted to mention that. Yeah. Thank you. Carolyn Jeremy Fox, you're next to ask your question. Um, Yes, uh, it's just in connection with a couple of things uh, because he visited us, uh, which was very exhilarating and exhausting. Uh, <laughs> in days. And um, <clears throat> uh, a couple of things. Uh, I remember him mentioning that well, before he came and did his trip through uh, the UK that um, he had done this ride uh, on horseback from north to south of New Zealand, visiting the schools. And he mentioned that when he reached the last of the schools that he uh, visited, uh, he gave his horse to one of the girls in the sixth form, I think it was, um, as a sort of parting gift, because he knew he wasn't going to be doing that sort of horse riding again. Um, and the other thing which wasn't mentioned, which I he actually somewhere I've got a book that he gave us, um, because he claimed to have almost, I can't remember the details, invented the caravan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which wasn't mentioned, but I, I can't remember the, exactly what it was, but I mean, it was, just gives an indication of his extraordinary imagination. <laughs> Uh, initiative. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's true. He uh, and I talk about this in in the book about his invention of the caravan, which he called. How do you? It was caravan spelled backwards was the name of his company. Navarac. Navarac. Yeah, and he he used uh, parts from airplanes after the First World War to build these caravans. And he was actually a master carpenter himself. And uh, he had 
fit up these caravans and very, very lovely. And, um, but uh, I don't think he was really that good with, he wasn't really good with money, Hugh, was he? And, <laughs> and so he, he failed to, uh, to copyright or trademark this thing or whatever you call it. And of course, somebody else used the idea and made, made their millions. And, uh, but, but to that point, though, because I, I often would follow up on things that St. Barb would mention, because I, you know, you just want to check to see if some of the statements were, yes. were possibly embroidered, um, as we all do. But um, in that particular instance, I followed up with a caravan magazine in, in England, because they call them caravans there rather than, than mobile homes or trailers as we would call them in the United States and in fact they they fully acknowledged that he was the person who set the whole thing in motion in terms of the modern version of the caravan which St. Barb had conceived of as something to use leftover um, materials from World War I creation of planes and other equipment and to use all that leftover material to create um, homes, mobile homes, caravan homes, for returning soldiers so that they could have a place that they could afford. And as Paul mentioned, he didn't think that, that, he didn't take the time to think that there would be an ongoing monetary connection with that. I should also just say that I, I often followed up these things because I was interested and I wanted to make sure that St. Barb's legacy was well acknowledged. And um, every time I would think, oh, maybe that particular story was a little overstated. Like, for example, Lowell Thomas. In North America, one of the great figures of the 20th century in terms of, of radio um, personalities. And I contacted him. He sent me a long, and he was towards the end of his life. He sent me a long letter, typewritten with, I don't know why, a green ribbon so that the, the ink was <laughs> maybe he thought that was because it was about St. Barb it should be green anyway and he was a very very enthusiastic um, supporter of St. Barb even you know probably 50 years after they'd had their last encounter mm. I would approach people like the former Prime Minister of Canada John Diefenbaker I went to meet him on St. Barb's behalf and he just adored St. Barb and one after the other, I, and uh, I accompanied him to meet Prince Charles, who was extremely um, deferential, as much as a member of the royal family can be, to um, St. Barb and recognized him. So it, it was for me a real, really important thing to be able to check some of these things out so that I could remain um, an avid, um, but informed, enthusiastic supporter of St. Barb's work. Yeah, I had, uh, I just wanted to add in, I had the same, there's so many things in writing this biography that were kind of remarkable uh, mm -hmm. things that he'd done that I, I had my doubts. And, uh, but I had an opportunity to interview uh, David Hoffman, who was about as reliable a source. He was a former member of the Universal House of Justice, the, the head of the Baha'i faith. Uh, and so I interviewed, and he used to be a roommate of Richard St. Barb Baker. And uh, one of the things St. Barb talks about is all these famous people that he knew, and I kind of had my doubts. And one of them was Yomo Kenyatta, the president of Kenya, 
And, uh, and so I was asking David Hoffman about all of these claims. And he said, well, he said one day in our apartment, someone knocked on the door and I went to the door and it was a representative of Yomo Kenyatta who had sent a package for Richard St. Barbaker with a bunch of things from Africa, books and, and so on. So he said, oh yeah, so, so many of these things were, were, were very much founded in fact. So. Absolutely. I think we have a problem because you both could tell stories all night about Richard St. Barbaker. We still have eight <laughs> questions waiting okay. to be asked. And I don't know how long the organizers want to go, go on before we go to the social part, but let's try to get through what we can. Steve Tonry, you're the next for the question. Yeah, first of all, thank you very much for a fascinating presentation. Um, St. Bob comes across rather like the tester of the trees. He was obviously light years ahead of his time in, in many respects. Um, I guess my question is sort of a, an observation and a question. Um, I've been reading a fascinating book called The Lost Language of Plants. And I think while most people understand the benefits of, of trees and planting trees and not, not destroying growing forests and so on, um, probably fewer people are very are unaware of the sort of in, you know, the exquisite chemistry of trees and, and the evolution thereof. Um, and that plants, all, well, plants and trees in particular are all sentient beings uh, with a very evolved and exquisite communication system. Um, and the way that they interconnect with, with the whole ecosystem is, is phenomenal when you start to look, look behind the detail. And it occurs to me that, you know, this part of knowledge, if you like, about plants and trees is, is sadly lacking in most areas, and, and I guess in, in education systems in particular. Um, and it sort of occurs to me that, what, you know, the legacy of St. Bart, uh, Bob's work, leg, or work, if you like, is cementing that into that, Sort of equation, and I guess my question is, how do we do this? <laughs> well, I think in a way, it's it's beginning to happen now. If you look at some of the scientific research into the the role of fungi um, and the the interaction of of large networks of fungi underground with root systems of trees and other living things, the science is beginning to quantify the process that St. Barb talked about almost in spiritual terms because there wasn't a language then to be able to, to speak about this, how all these connections took place. So I think it is actually um, happening um, more and more. Slowly, I suspect, in the general population. Well, that, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Amir, next. And then I'll pass to Maureen Sear, who hasn't been able to raise her hand. Amir? Yes, um, thank you for, for this um, very interesting presentation. And uh, I, I, I haven't heard about St. Bob before, so it was very interesting to know about his um, um, contribution to, to tree conservation and environment conservation. Uh, you, you mentioned, um, uh, Paul, about um, these two facts in, in Palestine. One was that story about about you know different the different people in his, in, in Palestine. You, you brought them together, uh, and then you you said that Israel now is um, more trees than had beginning of the 20th century, and it sounds it sounded like he that's kind of he was the, the instigator of, of the tree planting in, in Israel. So I just wanted to add that 
to, to the best of my knowledge, um, in the beginning of the 19, at the end of the 19th century, 19, 1884, that was the first time uh, when the Zionist movement started, they, they started planting um, trees in Israel. And then at the very beginning of the, 19, the 20th century, the Israel um, uh, National Foundation was formed. And one of its purpose was to forest the forest Israel and as far as I know that was the main force that that, that brought Israel to have more trees now than than uh, had before and I wonder if, if uh, there, he had if you can comment on, on that thank you well yeah I, I talked about that a, a little in the book and I yeah I don't mean to say that he was the instigator but he was kind of uh, I think what he, he tried to bring in was this uh, idea of kind of connecting tree planting to culture. And uh, so he had a role in, in, uh, in instigating or, or supporting uh, a festival of trees in, in starting in 1929. But specific to that, Paul, um, there was a, an Israeli journalist after St. Barb passed who contacted me to say that he had done research. Uh, he was uh, not Baha'i by any means, um, but he had done research um, and to the best of his knowledge, this journalist, whose name escapes me just at the moment, but um, he said that St. Barb um, was aware of a, a, a Jewish festival, which I believe is called Tuvish Fabat. And it had always been traditionally connected with trees and, and nature. But what St. Barb did was to, to um, reinstigate a tradition of planting trees around Tuba Shvabat that I believe continues to this day. And I hadn't known about that except for this Israeli journalist um, contacting me after St. Barb died. Thank you so much. I, I I was wondering about that because it is it is happening every year and it is, a, but I'm, 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 I I looked around and couldn't find any any reference to Saint Bob. So I'd be very interested. Rosemary, do it quickly. Yeah. Hi. Just very briefly. I hope um, I have fond memories of um, Saint Barb coming up to the Orkney Islands of north coast of Scotland when I was I was just a schoolgirl and I wasn't even a Baha'i at the time. But I remember the reverence with which the Baha'i community at the time welcomed him. And we were talking about it the other day, and a member of our community at the time said just the other day that after leaving Orkney, he was due to go to Iran because he'd been invited to design the gardens for the plant Mashukul Askar. And I just wondered if you knew anything about that project and if he ever made the designs and whether they were still existing, but perhaps not. I'm not aware of that specific one. I remember the trip to the Orkneys. I don't, <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that particular design project. Okay, that's fine. There's, there are some very interesting stories to tell about his time in Iran and uh, his connection to the, the Shrine of the Bob in the Shiraz, but uh, no time at the moment. Read the book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I will. Carl Eldridge. Hello. Um, I was just wondering what um, was uh, 
St. Bob's work about um, tree planting and um, ecological disaster in regards to nuclear weapons, in regards to Chernobyl, Lake Karachi and other places as well. Because um, in particular Russia, where uh, there's many nuked places and it caused a lot of ecological damage to the country and to, to the whole world. Well, that was a little after his time, but I, I would say that when you look at the detailed plans he put in place for the reclamation of the Sahara Desert, to me, that, that's the spirit with which he would have approached anything like that. And, you know, he took into account an extraordinarily severe environment, it wasn't radioactive, but, you know, some of the hottest places on earth, and how to begin to use trees that worked into the natural environment. And the, the spiral thing, Paul, he explained to me that he wanted to capture the wind and, and kind of bring it in and out. I'm not, I'm not conveying that well. I just remember him trying to explain to me. I never totally got it either. Yeah. <laughs> he was very interested in Russia. And, and uh, yes. someone earlier had mentioned the book Green Glory, where he kind of does a survey of the world's forests. And... Uh, and he does talk about the Russian forests. And he claimed that they used his book as a textbook in Russia. I don't know if that was. Well, and he was very much um, appreciated in China. And the, um, the great Chinese forester, uh, Dr. Zhu Zhaohua, was very much inspired by St. Barbon and, and the massive um, reforestation efforts in China. While you can't pinpoint those to St. Barb, uh, exclusively, they were certainly informed by um, his work through um, uh, Dr. Hua. Maureen? Oh, hi, and thank you, Arthur, Hugh, and Paul. That's been great. I've really, really enjoyed tonight. Um, just very, very quickly to say that I met Richard St. Barbaker in 1978 in Aberdeen, probably on his way down mm -hmm. from the Orkney Islands, I suspect. And it was the very same night that I met my husband, which was, <laughs> so it might have been overshadowed a little bit by uh, meeting Nick. But anyway, I did meet Richard St. Barbaker. But my question is actually about COP26 mm -hmm. coming to Glasgow. Mm -hmm. um, and as Director of Interface Scotland, the, we're involved in some faith-based coalitions to try to do, you know, to see what, what faith communities, what is their voice and their input and what can they do, um, given that, you know, one of the biggest uh, climate crisis conferences in the world really is coming to our little part yeah. of the globe to be here this year. And yeah. it would be wonderful uh, to have, you know, um, obviously Baha'is are involved, but there's, you know, we're working in an interfaith context to bring as many faith communities as we possibly can together. So it's what, what would be the message that you think I should be encouraging the faith communities to give? We've already had the religious leaders give a couple of really strong messages um, to the COP, which is wonderful. And the second thing is we have something called um, the World Interfaith Harmony Grove, which we founded in the Scottish Highlands under the programme Trees for Life. And I just quickly looked at a little article and saw that the founder of the Trees for Life programme um, was influenced by Richard St. Barbaker. He said that was his inspiration oh. for the Trees for Life programme. And yeah. my hometown, Elgin, is only about five or six miles from Findhorn. And that oh. hugely famous ecological village yes. also has huge relationships with Richard St. Barbaker. So 
my mind's kind of thinking, is there a way we could do in Scotland a pilgrimage for the planet, perhaps, and yeah. move all the religious leaders, you know, from Glasgow up to Findhorn and do something that really celebrates Richard St. Barbaker. But anyway, basically, the question is about COP and what should we do? What should faith-based organisations do or say around COP, the COP26 climate? Well, I, I can't resist just a little story about Findhorn. So one of the founders of Findhorn was a Canadian woman named Dorothy McLean. And Dorothy, whom I got to know later in her life through an introduction by St. Barb, um, she's the one who um, got the messages from the plant divas. Now, St. Barb used to say, um, when presented with something like that, which might be somewhat off the mainstream path of uh, faith traditions, he would say, and I always love this phrase, I would rather believe than not believe when presented with such ideas, um, but I'm not quite there yet. And so that's how we responded to Dorothy, because he wasn't quite ready for the plant diva thing. But um, Dorothy said that of all the messages she got through her lifetime from this source, that the only time an individual was named was Richard St. Barbaker. Oh, wow. Fantastic. And I want to also say thank you to Arthur for his visit to Scotland, which really galvanised the community to, to think around uh, the climate. And so it was great we had Arthur visit us before COVID. <laughs> well, I had an idea, because we're still trying to figure out what to do to, to you know, re-engage people around St. Barb and some of these legacies. So COP26, Glasgow, and um, the Connect for Climate initiative of the World Bank yeah. is an interesting one because it's, it's somewhat autonomous from the, the centralized version of, of uh, World Bank. And it's supported uh, primarily by the governments of um, Italy and uh, France. And they're looking for ways to engage youth around COP26. So I've been in discussion with them in connection with my own work in Haiti. But maybe we should propose to them an interfaith activity which draws together the arts to recreate the original dance of the trees in Glasgow, mm. drawing in all the faith communities, but also the arts. I think it could be fabulous. Neil McNeilan, the last question before we go to the social part. <laughs> So many connections because I heard Hugh and Paul speak at the Parliament of the World Religions two years ago, and I also heard Arthur speak to the Scottish Parliament. I'm from Aberdeen originally, but I'm in Canada now. So I'm also with the Agricultural Working Group of the ABS, and it was through that group that uh, I'm attending today. My question is, Richard St. Barb Baker, the saint is actually quite a significant part of his name. Is, is, was he a saint? In that regard, I want to ask, <laughs> he never had a family. Oh, he did. Oh, he did? So he was married twice. Okay. Had two, two children by his first marriage. And um, we're in touch with some of the descendants, particularly one of his grandsons is very keen on um, being part of any sort of revival of interest in his legacy. Thank you. If we cut down a tree today in the Amazon, how many years will it be before we could replace that tree? 
well, it, de it depends on the, on the context. When we're doing tree planting in Haiti, for example, with local um, farmers, we estimate that once you plant the tree, if you've looked after it for three years, then it has a reasonable chance of living to maturity. But you've got to make sure the goats don't get it. Um, you've got to make sure that, that, that if there's a lack of rainfall that you, you know, um, address that. So a lot of issues come into play when you're trying to figure um, about reforestation. And the other thing is to choose a species that is correct for that particular environment. So there's a, a lot of different factors come into it. But it's something that's being, the whole process of reforestation now is much more informed than it was when St. Barb was a pioneer trying to explain these things to people. He was, you know, cautioning against monoculture, the need for mixed species, the, a whole range of things. And it's now becoming more commonplace to take those kinds of things into account when you're doing reforestation, even in a place like, like Brazil, if that, if that helps. Thank you again to our speakers for sharing so much. Uh, it's been really exciting and encouraging to catch up with somebody who often is not as well known as he ought to be. Thank you to Lith, discovering so much about Richard St. Barb Baker. Back to our organizers. <laughs>